This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. actually be the most derivative one of all. I mean, Christ, the same house. Maybe so. But you forgot the first rule of surviving a stab movie. Never answer the... I'm bored. Wait! And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking spit play and bumper taps. We're talking get going, sweethearts. And we're talking cutie pie C. Thomas Howell. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're discussing just how far an older gay dude will go to eat a young twink's butt. <laughs> uh, yes, we are. Everyone, we are discussing The Hitcher. And if you follow us on socials, you may be aware that we actually did a live show on The Hitcher at Salem Horror Fest back in April. Um, we were going to actually just post that that recording of it, but um, I done fucked up and uh, it didn't <laughs> record. So uh, you're getting a brand new, fresh episode on The Hitcher. Yeah, so it'll sound very similar to those of you who were kind enough to join us. And by the way, thank you to Kay and Salem Horror Fest for inviting us and to mm -hmm. everyone who came out and, you know, told us their stories and were vulnerable. It was lovely to meet people in person. God, what a... What a delight, right? But um, we're going to try to recreate some of that experience. But obviously, it's not as much fun because we got to clap back at audience members. There was that <laughs> one old lady who was in the wrong theater and you made a rim job joke. And she was like, what show is this? Yeah, she did not know what she was in for. Um, so she walked out. <laughs> <laughs> so unfortunately, you will not get to hear her say something like that on this audio recording. No, no. But we are going to mimic the, uh, the format we did for that live show. So this may not be like a supersized two-hour jumbo discussion of the hitcher but we're still gonna get um you know all up in this bitch <laughs> you know what we're gonna tap your own bumper and then we're gonna say goodnight. <laughs> but i guess okay wait joe so uh, what is your connection with this film because i confess so when, when we decided to program this for salem horror fest you know we were having some issues because the theme of the festival this year was folk horror and mm -hmm. nothing was really like screaming out at us we didn't have a strong connection with a lot of uh especially queer folk horror films and then yeah. Kay brought up the hitcher and it was like oh why not? Because urban, what are urban legends but folk horror? Yeah, yeah, indeed. This seemed like a surprisingly good fit, albeit a bit of a surprising choice, right? 
Yeah, so I, I confess. I actually don't think I saw this film until a little bit later. I, I think I was in high school, but I actually think I saw the sequel, the direct-to-video sequel, The Hitcher 2, I've Been Waiting. Um, <laughs> oh my god, that's I know, on Sci-Fi first. Uh, and then I think because of that, I, I, I was like, oh, look, The Hitcher's a famous film, blah, 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 I'll seek it out. Mm -hmm. I will confess, when I first saw The Hitcher, I wasn't a huge fan. I didn't dislike it. Um, mm -hmm. But it was very much a, oh, where's all the blood and gore? It's not right. very scary. Um, mm -hmm. well, I, I'm kind of bored by this, and um, I can I, I like it a lot more now. I appreciate it a lot more now. It's still not one of my favorite films, but it's definitely like risen in the ranks over the decades. Yeah, I think I also saw it quite a bit later. I think I checked it out when I was doing research for my slasher college course that I was teaching. I was trying to cross off a bunch of, you know, just gaps in my general watching knowledge, and. Kind of like you, I was surprised because I thought it was going to be something different than what it actually is, which, you know, if you look at reviews, a lot of people say, oh, this is kind of like the Terminator with a hitchhiker instead of a killer robot from the future. And I can definitely see that, you know, in some ways... I've seen people say, oh, it's more of a thriller film, it's more of an action film. I think all of those things apply, but particularly from a queer perspective, there's a lot of horrific things that go on if you read either of these two leads as queer. Yes, and there's absolutely, we'll, we'll, we will at least be reading one of them as queer for sure, the titular hitcher. Um, yeah, everyone, we are going to be reading Rutger Hauer's character as a gay man because, um, mm -hmm. honestly, it's kind of hard not to, given what the film does. <laughs> well, that is one of the other big surprises. Prizes, right is the number of straight bros who want to say there's nothing queer in this there's no homoerotic tension there's no undertones and i mean we're gonna make a lot of jokes throughout this we're going to talk about you know the kind of undertones where if you wanted to look sideways and not see what's right there in front of your fucking face you could make the argument sure it's just an action film but the reality is this shit is fucking gay yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very gay. We will go through all the gay things we found because, oh boy, did I watch this movie about four to five times the week of this live show? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to see my letterbox stats on this film by the end of the year. Oh my god, it's gonna fuck up all my stats. I'm so mad about this. <laughs> Favorite actor, Rutger Howard. You know what? Checks out. <sighs> okay, well, before we get into the production, everyone, so we have two sources we're going to pull from. We have Tim Grierson's Inside the Unsettling Homoerotic Terror of the Hitcher, which was posted on Mail Magazine. And we also have Marcus Lindenberg's How to Make a Monster, the Homosexual Experience in Horror and thriller cinema uh so we'll pull a couple quotes from that throughout this but um let's uh jump in shall we absolutely so trace there there isn't a convoluted backstory to this and yet it is a bit robust more than i thought i, I will confess when we got this i was kind of like i don't really know a lot about this movie of course that can all be fixed with research which i did <laughs> and you did but i was kind of like what interesting things could there be about this film so Screenwriter Eric Red, uh, everyone, he, uh, actually a previous uh, horror queers uh, uh, alumni, he was the screenwriter for Near Dark, the Catherine Bigelow vampire movie we discussed last year. Yeah, so apparently dude loves him a western homoerotic thriller. Uh, yeah, that, it's, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think that's also why I never gravitated towards this movie, because I, the desert setting is just not really appealing to me. 
That is true. Yeah, that was something you and I had a lot of conversations about. You know, it's gorgeous. It, I think it contributes really significantly to the tension of this film mm -hmm. because Jim, the C. Thomas Howell character, is so isolated and you really get the feel for that in these extreme long shots. Yeah. And yet you and I, you know, there's a couple of genres that you and I don't have the strongest affinity for war films and also westerns so these sometimes take that that extra jump to get over the hurdle well and i think honestly though like finding all these queer things in this film made me like it more because oh, i great. think in the past, I was kind of like, eh, just kind of a bro movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I made the kind of facetious offhand remark, oh, you could just turn your nose at it and not see it. But the reality is, is there's large chunks of this which play out like a conventional 80s action film, right? It's mm -hmm. trucks and cars go boom real good. Honestly, some of these car scenes I had completely forgotten about. And I was like, oh, because I guess in my head, I always envisioned this being a low budget film. And it right. very much was not a low budget film. So and that money went to good use in those action scenes. It's true. It's true. But sorry, I, I interrupted you and got you off on a big tangent. Tell me more about Eric Red. Okay, okay, okay. So yeah, um, Eric Red um, was not getting any work in New York City. So he takes a cross country road trip from New York City to Austin. He's like, yeah, sure. What am I going to do? I'm going to move to Austin, Texas. And as a former Austinite myself, I support this decision. <laughs> and I'm sure as anyone living in New York would say, big mistake. <laughs> Huge. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so on the way, he picks up a hitchhiker because he's following his... Much like Jim in the opening scene of this film, he's falling asleep, it's raining, he's like worried he's going to get into a car wreck, so he picks up a hitchhiker, mm -hmm. and thankfully, nothing bad happened. Like, the, this wasn't a, a Rucker-Hauer situation, but right. he was unsettled by the guy he picked up. He said that he was just sitting there, staring at him, smelling dirty, um... <laughs> I still find that quote so offensive. I know. Like, oh, like, God, this man was smelling horribly. But you look dirty. You don't smell dirty. Exactly. Anyway, <laughs> so he, he he pulled up to a gas station. He politely told him to get out, and the guy got out. So whatever. So he finally makes it to Austin, and he, this, this idea of this hitchhiker just stays in his head. So during his seven-month stay in Austin, which I'm like, okay, you only were there for seven months like what <laughs> you don't know you don't know what his struggle was that's true it's true it was the 80s this is like 1981 82 83 um so yeah he drives the taxi cab for work and during this time he's moonlighting writing the script for the hitcher so in 83 he sends a letter to several hollywood producers with this note and i quote the story grabs you by the guts and does not let up, and it does not let go. When you read it, you will not sleep for a week. When the movie is made, the country will not sleep for a week. <laughs> That's some high self-praise. <laughs> it is indeed, and it almost makes me think, oh, wow, he should have written loglines or taglines for movies because that's a bit of a humdinger. Honestly, why didn't they use it for this one? They should have, but... <laughs> it is surprising that they didn't use it, yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, um, I think... I don't know if we got a lot of, like, oh, yeah, like, send me this thing that you're hype hyping up so much, but eventually, script development executive David Bombick received a copy of his letter, and he was so intrigued, he was like, you know what, yes, please send me a copy of your script <laughs> so it worked it did work but what red didn't say <laughs> was that his script was 190 pages long uh, 
no <laughs> i know and so for everyone not in the know um usually the rule of thumb is one page of a script equals one minute of screen time so we are looking at a three plus hour version of the hitcher yeah the audacity of this man <laughs> <laughs> i am going to say no to that although we you know we should also acknowledge a lot of people write scripts and then you have to rewrite them or you get edits and notes that say this is three hours long and we're not making it so cut it down for sure and that's exactly what happened here you know apparently the script also was very 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 violent like a there were more death scenes but it was also more explicit in how we had to show them in the film which as anyone who's seen this film knows that we don't really do that we take the texas chainsaw massacre approach where we are hiding a lot of the violence and Mm -hmm. That's how. That's why I like this movie more now, though, is because I did remember it being more violent, and it has that yeah. effect where it's so exhausting, it's so intense, that you remember it being a lot gorier than it actually is. Yeah, and we'll talk more about that when we get to the critiques, because oh, yeah. I think that plays a huge part. A hundred percent. So the script was intriguing enough, but again, uh, Bombic thought it was too violent. So he and his personal manager, Kip Omen, got Red to move out to L.A. So they could all tweak. Th- oh, maybe that's why he was only in Austin for seven months. <laughs> <laughs> you fucker. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he moved out to L.A. Uh, and they all tweaked the script together before showing it to their boss, producer Ed Feldman, and his partner, Charles Meeker. And the intent was to remove some more of the exploitation elements of the film and to stop it from becoming a slasher film and i was kind of like we're still doing this back then but i guess like 1986 right like this is the heyday of the slasher boom and Mm -hmm. if you are a slasher you are quote-unquote less than you are a sub film uh, according to film critics right i also wonder if at this point they were starting to see okay the big slashers are the franchises but Mm -hmm. also the slasher was really having its heyday in 8081. So by the time this film comes along, even though it's only a year or two later that this script is in development, I wonder if they were already looking at the kind of depreciating results and saying, uh, let's try to do something a little bit different to help it stand out. Oh, you know what? That's also entirely possible. So yeah, I, I actually don't even know if there was ever an intention to make a sequel to this film. Do you know? I don't know. But the fact that it's so much later tells me no. Well, well, this is also a flop, but we'll get there in a minute. (laughs) There is that. Yeah, flops don't tend to get a lot of sequels. So, yeah, so they spent six months reworking this script uh, and uh, removing, again, a lot of the repetitive violence. So I think it wasn't just the fact that it was really violent and it was too much like a slasher film. It was like, oh, this is just it's just old by this point. We're just seeing the same shit over and over and over. What we really want to do is focus on the relationship between the Hitcher and the Jim character. Right. Makes sense. So enter Robert Harmon, who got his start as a photographer when he moved to L.A., and he, of course, ends up being the director of this film, but his kind of, like, proof of concept, well, unintentionally so, because he didn't do it knowing he was going to get the hitcher, but he made a short film called China Blue, starring Charles Napier, and truthfully, I I was like, should I know who Charles Napier is? I only know him from uh, the, The Cop in Silence of the Lambs. Oh, right. Yeah, the name sounded familiar, but I couldn't place it. Yeah, he's only gets his face ripped off. Oh, <laughs> what a memorable role. But but Joe, you and I watched this. I'm in preparation for this live show because, and, and admittedly, <laughs> we had the link for it. Everyone, this is available on YouTube. We will put it in the show notes. Um, mm-hmm. I opened it and I was like, oh, it's 35 minutes long. So it's a short-ish film. <laughs> it is a short film, as in emphasis on the film and not so much on the short. But it's funny because Robert Harmon himself is a self-proclaimed, like, not horror guy yeah he's a jim gillespie very much a jim gillespie uh so 
Which <laughs> is really funny because if you look at his filmography after this film, he did like a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie in the early 90s. He did some straight to TV uh, John Travolta movie before Travolta's Pulp Fiction career resurgence. Oh, okay. He also directed 2003, maybe 2004's Wes Craven Presents They, which oh. is a horror movie <laughs> and also not a very good one. Yeah, the other fun thing that we discovered is apparently he has a very close relationship with Tom Selleck. So he has done a ton of that Blue Blood show. Uh, the Blue Blood show, but also, okay, it's Jesse Stone movies. These are all TV right. movies. Okay, one, two, Three, four, five, six, like six. Oh, my God. Eight of these movies between 2005 and 2015. You know what? I love that for his golden toilet in some kind of luxury holiday property, because no doubt the money was great. I had never heard of this. And when I saw this list, I was like, Jesus. But you know what? Someone must be enjoying him. Sure. Oh, sure. shit. They is 2002, by the way. But he also did the 2003 film Highwayman with Rona Mitra and Jim Caviezel, which is more in line with The Hitcher in that it's a mm. car movie. But again, it's kind of the thing where it's like it's a horror movie slash thriller slash suspense. So for a man who doesn't like horror, he sure does come keep coming back to it. Actually, so coming back around to the short, which, by the way, it's actually called China Lake, not China Blue. Oh, my God. Where am I getting? China Blue is the name of a hooker in something. I was going to say, I think that's a sex worker from another movie. <laughs> but, uh, folks, I would actually encourage you to check out China Lake because it is an interesting film, especially when you realize he doesn't know he's going to make the hitcher. It it literally is that proof of concept that you were talking about, Trace. The premise is surprisingly similar, only the hitcher is actually a cop who is on vacation. And we just watch him have these encounters where during this vacation period, he decides to abuse his privilege as an officer of the law to just kill people, people over yeah, yeah it, it's actually very harrowing it's incredibly well shot because i think that roger Harmon is a very good director so it has a lot of similarities with the hitcher mm-hmm. but it it plays out differently i will say the opening scene takes place in the police precinct and it's completely unimportant like Trace, yes. you and i watched it and we just said why would you open your short on this kind of mess of just diegetic sound that doesn't actually contribute to anything and doesn't have a good hook like it, it was baffling but the rest of the short is quite good yeah well that's the thing because the opening scene is only meant to establish that oh there's a cop that's not there for roll call because he's on vacation and it's mm-hmm. like we could have just honestly I'm sorry, I'm going to spoil it, but like the way I could, I think it would have been good to just remove that scene and have the end twist be like, oh, he's on vacation. And this is like, oh, that's this is what cops do on vacation. Like that, it would have been more of like a, oh shit, kind of a moment for me. But, um, mm-hmm. cause it is an interesting interrogation of, you know, very a cabby in some yes. ways, you know, suspiciously prescient in that regard. But also, it's very much trading in the themes of the Hitcher in addressing these issues of masculinity and like a not a comedy of manners, but just how when we are confronted with intimidating figures, if they have authority over us, often we will sort of acquiesce to their demands in ways that could be very violent or threatening. Yes. Also, um, the reason I kept thinking China Blue is because that is the name of Kathleen Turner's character in Crimes of Passion. (laughs) 
yes, it is. That, <laughs> that's how I knew it because I just watched that a couple of months ago. <laughs> anyway, though, but Ch China Lake got Harmon notice, and um, so he got an agent to sign him. But he wasn't really liking any of the scripts that were sent his way. And so he finally just said yes to the hitcher, partly because he did like it, didn't love it, but he liked it. And <laughs> partly because he was feeling pressure from his agent to finally accept something. So he didn't want to be dropped by his agent for being a fucking idiot. <laughs> you know what? I don't love horror, but I guess if I have to make a movie, I should probably say yes to something. Yes. So producers Feldman and Meeker optioned the film themselves, paying Eric Red $25,000. And because of the violence in the script, major studios like Universal Pictures and Warner Brothers passed on it, as did smaller ones like Orion Pictures and New World Pictures, which I would raise my eyebrow at, but honestly, mm -hmm. because this film flopped, it would have probably put both of those companies out of business sooner <laughs> than they already went. <laughs> Yeah, they, they had their own flops looming, so they didn't need this one. <laughs> um, many executives did like the script, but th the one scene that they all were like, nope, can't do that, is uh, the Nash character's death scene, the Jennifer Jason Lee death scene. Right, which arguably is the film's talkiest, buzziest moment. Uh, yes, but again, we don't see it happen. Mm-hmm. So independent producer Donna Dubrow, uh, Feldman's former employee, went to work for Silver Screen Partners slash Home Box Office, a.k.a. HBO. A.k.a. A.L.A. <laughs> <laughs> but she heard about the film and she asked Feldman for a copy of the script. And her boss liked it, along with Michael Fuchs, the HBO chairman and COO. So they needed his approval to get the film made. And he said, yep, you know what? I will do this, but we cannot tear that girl apart and we have to reduce the violence in the film. So oh. I know. So they gave them a budget of seven point nine million dollars. OK, yeah, that that is a healthy amount. Yeah. Again, like what? Especially for inflation, that's probably close to 15 million dollars today. Maybe a little bit more even. Maybe a little more. Yeah, it might be closer to 20. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, that's two Blumhouse movies. <laughs> or three <laughs> depending on if a female director exactly oh yeah 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 so contractually tristar pictures was obligated to distribute any film by hbo and silver screen so they released it in almost 800 theaters on february 21st 1986 it was the only new release that weekend but it opened in the number eight slot with 2.1 million dollars yikers okay yeah uh other films that week that were not in their first week of release but all these ones that beat it disney's first r-rated film down and out in beverly hills Wildcats, the Goldie Hawn football movie, which I don't like. Um, <laughs> just had to sneak that in there. Yeah. Uh, the Color Purple, of course, and the Meryl Streep starring Out of Africa. Um, again, some of these movies are in their like fourth or fifth week of release, beating The Hitcher this weekend. Okay, so what I'm hearing is that we needed a mature actress in the role of Nash. It's like, keep the ingenue idea, but have her played by Meryl Streep it's shit <laughs> it's really one of those things where i'm just like I, I this has to have been a marketing thing i i guess i don't know like uh, it's not like there wasn't an appetite for this kind of stuff maybe the reviews heard it because well i'm so, uh, all right so <laughs> <laughs> speculate, speculate 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 okay um it goes on to gross 5.8 million dollars domestically again against that 7.9 million dollar budget so this film right. was a flop yeah it got mixed reviews upon its release, and today we're looking at a 62% of Rotten Tomatoes with an average rating of 6 out of 10, but that includes a lot of a lot newer reviews. Um, right. So on Metacritic, we've got a 32 out of 100, and that's probably more accurate of what the general critical consensus was at the time. Yeah, that is low. Yeah. Like, 
I could see not liking parts of this film or like you and I, oh, it's a Western. I'm not really intrigued by this, but 32 suggests it's just not a good movie. Oh, I know, right? Um, but th that's where Letterboxers just come in handy because they have given it a 7.2 out of 10. Because, yes, I will we call this a cult classic? I feel like, you know, there's certain people who really fucking like this movie. So I can see people saying, you know, it's got a small but dedicated audience. Yeah, yeah, I, I would say so as well. Um, but yeah, so common critiques. Um, let's let's throw Roger Ebert under the bus again. So um, <laughs> you know what? He does it to himself. I know. Ebert fucking hated this movie. Um, his uh, the quote that I pulled from his review, the hitcher grants the Howard character almost supernatural powers, although that makes the movie impossible to accept on a realistic level. It didn't bother me. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. He's you. He's me. Um, I could see that the film was meant as an allegory, not a documentary, but no on shit. <laughs> but on its own terms, this movie is diseased and corrupt i would have admired it more if i had found the courage to acknowledge the real relationship it was portraying between howell and rucker but no it prefers to disguise itself as a violent thriller and on that level it is reprehensible yeah so we're also bearing the lead i think he gave this zero stars yeah it, it was like a no star film which he <laughs> only reserved i think it's in his book like i hate 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 hated this movie yeah, you know, he gives a lot of movies bad reviews, but he gives no stars to only a small select number of films. So yeah, this is a cult film because that puts it in a very small group of uh, Roger Ebert hated movies. <laughs> it's in good company, though, because the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake is in that group as well. There we go. I will <laughs> say one thing that stands out to me in this quote that you read is it seems like Ebert himself is hitting on the homoerotic undertones, right? He wants yes. to see the relationship between Jim and John. Well, and, and that's not something that only Ebert noticed. So again, if, if you're just listening to our show for the first time and you're like, guys, y'all are reaching, this isn't gay. Um, <laughs> literally, so a quote from the Globe and Mail critic Jay Scott in the in 1986 described the film as a slasher movie about gay panic a nasty piece of homophobic angst for the age of aids yeah yeah when you and i were putting the research on this together because we actually collaborated more on this yeah. than we normally do because we wanted to make sure that the live show went off well mm -hmm. and we were both kind of joking like oh it's a it's a film with homoeroticism in the 80s so of course we're gonna have to talk about aids but it is wild to see a review from the Times yeah. just fully putting that out there. And the unfortunate thing about this is we both took a crack at trying to find this review to see if this is just a one-off line or if this is the basis of the whole review. I think it's probably behind the Globe and Mail's paywall, but we could not find anything more than this quote. So we don't have the context for what Scott is actually like, is is this put in context or is this just him saying, you know, blah, but... I think that this is a really interesting review. Yeah, I, I felt validation when I saw this quote. So <laughs> right. there we go. There we go. Um, but yeah, I mean, otherwise, you know, we have people calling it a nauseating thriller, a highly unimaginative slasher. The slasher <laughs> designation is so interesting to me because I don't I don't view this as much because none of the, the people that get killed in this film are actual characters, which I guess you could make that argument for a lot of slasher films mm -hmm. of the 80s, but they they are one dimensional characters, but they are still characters with like a prominent place in the film. Whereas in this movie, it's like cops show up and they get killed. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I personally wouldn't call this a slasher because I, I have a more narrowly defined 
approach to that subgenre. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's funny that if you want to read it as a slasher, sure, it is there because we've got this guy who's just going around picking people off. And yeah, they're not quite characters. And that's fairly common. But I think it's funny that you would then say, oh, okay, well, it's not adhering to a bunch of the things we're seeing in other films like teenagers, smaller settings, uh, some kind of mythology, backstory, trauma. And then for people to say, but it's unimaginative. It's like, well, actually, it's an unconventional slasher. I wouldn't use the word unimaginative. Well, and to be fair, I mean, this film is considered a classic by today's standards, I feel like. Mm hmm. But anyway, so yeah, that that is how The Hitcher got made. Let's talk about some of these set pieces, right? Okay, yeah. So we're going to spend a lot of time on two key sequences. And of course, those are the moments that feature Jim and John heavily. So the opening scene where we just see Jim, who is played by Baby Twink, see Thomas Howell, who of course at this point was famous from roles in Red Dawn and The Outsider. So Mm -hmm. he had... That, that baby face charisma, he was very much a kind of soft boy where, ooh, he's he's so cute and young and innocent, you want to protect him, which is great for the role of Jim. And I love that our introduction to him is literally him opening the door and saying, my mother told me not to do this. Yeah, so it could be talking about hitchhiking, but she's really talking about fucking men. <laughs> yeah it's basically you know mom told me to be careful around older men that i don't know you know uh, there is a lot of subtext in this movie and we are mm-hmm. going to have a lot of fun poking holes no <laughs> and we are gonna have a lot of fun poking fun at it fun having fun poking fun <laughs> i'm leaving poking. that in because poking holes is too much of a fun double entendre <laughs> <laughs> it's true but um the the reality is that so many of these choice lines and the decisions you know i don't know if howell was kind of in on this but you definitely get the impression that rucker howard is playing this as an intimacy between these two men well that's the thing because rucker howard his performance is i I don't want to say one note but he's very like calm throughout this Mm -hmm. entire thing he's very playful and it feels like flirtation more than more than it feels like like an angry killer i guess Right. Yeah, he he's never getting angry at this, even during the violent outburst. If anything, he seems sadistic, right? And we are going to gently venture into a potential SNM reading of this later on. But I think there's there's just a lot of different kind of queer attributes that end up applying to the John Hitchhiker character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, when it comes to hitchhiking, like, do you have you ever hitchhiked? Do you have any experience with hitchhiking? So I don't, but primarily because I don't drive and my parents would never open the door for anybody. (laughs) You know, I know for a fact that my parents hitchhiked once, like in the 80s, but she quickly shut him up because she didn't want my dad to tell me that story. (laughs) (laughs) It would ruin the image of Mama Trace. And now I'm telling all of you. (laughs) There we go. Yeah. So one of the interesting things that we found in the research was that there's actually a, a pretty substantial history of hitchhiking in the U.S. Like, it's it's very much a part of the culture, but it shifts when we get into the Reagan 80s. So before that, it was a lot of GIs. It was a lot of men of color. So people who either couldn't afford cars or to travel on buses or trains, they would just hitchhike. And it was actually very common for people to do so like it wasn't a dangerous thing 
And then suddenly we get into the 80s and between Reagan and his conservative era, as well as J. Edgar Hoover, who has a queer backstory for himself. He's the head of the FBI, but he actually more or less created a print marketing campaign that warned people about the dangers of hitchhiking. And from that, he literally changed the culture and we get things like the hitcher as a result. Reagan sounds like a real stand up guy. I mean, he and his wife were just <laughs> pillars of the queer community, did so much to help us, definitely didn't fuck us over at all. They loved the gays. They loved the gays. And it's, I mean, it is a coincidence, but it also is, like, important. Like, this is also happened, like, yeah, during, like, the AIDS crisis and, and mm -hmm. Reagan's lack of anything <laughs> to do with it. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, so this is, I mean, I, I'm actually surprised we didn't get more hitchhiking movies. I guess, I mean, you know, I mentioned the Texas Chainsaw Massacre earlier because that's another movie where i think you know when you're talking about hitchhikers in horror films mm -hmm. that's the big one and so we were seeing like you know the dangerous hitchhiker as early as 1973 1974 74 74 but it took like yeah another like you know 12 years before we got a whole movie about it Right. And it, I think it's relevant that you brought up Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because when you look at the hitchhiker in that film, it is, you know, ooh, he I could smell the grossness on him. So there's a, a bit of a class element there as mm -hmm. well. And I think in this film, if we do read John as a queer figure, there's that kind of association of grossness, low class, dirty untrustworthy so i think it's an, an interesting kind of reactionary look at how we might have viewed queer figures during the height of the aids crisis well and so we're viewing then the roger Hauer character as a queer man who is now being picked up by this young boy who is uh let's say discovering his sexuality yeah, the way that we've chosen to read Jim is somebody who is very innocent, right? You know, he he doesn't know what he's doing. He literally references his mother as his opening line, but he's there to be corrupted. So there's definitely a reading of this where John wants to indoctrinate or help Jim to make this realization. You are just like me. You are queer. 100%. Now, for the more um, surface level queer aspects of this scene, though, I mean, like we have quotes like, I'm getting your car wet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Even when he says that, though, there's a close up of Jim looking at John. And it's just like, <laughs> it's Rucker Hauer's full lips with this drop of water falling off of his nose. And it looks like how you might shoot a, hey, I want to kiss those fucking lips. Yes. Well, and then, and then one of the next scenes, uh, one of the next lines that we get is jim asks him well what are you looking at me like that for and again like mm -hmm. there's some coding there but then yeah what are you looking at me like that for yeah but how his reply is he, he waits a beat which again mm -hmm. it's like an uncomfortably long beat yes and then he's like just looking um okay yeah <laughs> and, and, and it's meant to be menacing and nefarious you know he obviously has ulterior motives we're gonna figure out pretty soon that he already did this to somebody else and he just murdered them right that's the the vw bug that they drive by but in this situation the way we're watching it play out it looks like a flirtatious it looks like a flirtatious meat cute yeah i almost think like if, if you didn't have the next bit where he you know pulls out a knife on him and mm -hmm. you just had the if you just showed someone this scene right i think i think it's easy to buy into this as like yeah this is a this is a meat cute or a, a, a start of a porno yeah, like we're going to stop at the next hotel 
Yeah, Moto, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> if only they had Grinder back then, all their problems would have been solved. There we go. So then it starts to get a little bit more intense because we start to learn that the Hitcher is a threatening figure. And so mm-hmm. pulls a knife on Jim. And, you know, of course, the knife is the phallic figure. Uh, that's old hat by this point. Sure. They go to this like construction checkpoint where they have to stop. And it's at this point where Howard grabs Howell's thigh. And mm-hmm. we get not one but two close-up shots of this. And the first is to show us that the Howard means business. The second is when this construction worker comes up to him and he looks down and notices that Howard's hand is moving closer and closer to Jim's cock. Yeah. And of course, we know that he's actually holding a knife to his balls and dig. But from the point of view of this construction worker, and and it's literally written into the film, you know, as he's waving them through, he says, get going, sweethearts, because he has read this as a homosexual couple who are having a little bit of a handsy drive mm-hmm. so even uh, going back to lindenberg's article he writes not only are there overt moments of touching a thigh or phallic symbolism in gun use the film itself reflects the extreme gay panic overtaking america in the 1980s jim an all-american boy is a cautionary tale of what will happen to us when the dangerous homosexual comes along to prey on us exactly so it you know this is fascinating in some ways because it's obviously terrifying for jim but if you read this as jim is actually a queer coded figure you know removing the threat of either being castrated or stabbed or something like this you know this is a confrontational moment where he has offered this man who he probably should not have let into his car in the first place he's let him in and now this man is making direct overtures on him and he feels threatened yes 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 and even i can go back to this dialogue right we have like you've got the knife you'll stick me with it before i am able to do anything like okay Mm -hmm. stick me with it like come on man 100 percent. it's giving (laughs) deliverance vibes oh my god yes <laughs> oh i guess we got to cover that one day too huh a hundred percent yeah yeah um <laughs> and yeah you know construction worker says get going sweethearts because he knows he, he reads them as a queer couple yeah and of course you know john plays into it so record howard gives him this delicious little blow of a kiss and off we go into the next set piece i will say though you know first time watching this because like th- this movie hits the ground running because you think okay like we're gonna get some introduction blah blah blah. the hitcher like he's never gonna pick up the hitchhiker at the end of the first act and that will mm-hmm. comprise a lot of act two no right. It, 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 so I'm I, I'm surprised that the opening scene of this isn't mentioned more in like mm-hmm. scariest opening scenes of horror films. Yeah, especially because we're not getting that kind of background. As you said, it hits the ground running. There is no fat. This is a surprisingly lean movie in a lot of ways. Sure, the car chasey stuff gets a little repetitive, mm-hmm. but yeah, this opening heart is so dynamic and we haven't really praised the actors you know i think howard gets a lot of kudos for this because he is menacing and he i mean he's always fantastic but i think the interplay between him and howell is really convincing and it's really it's electric at times it does feel very sexual it it can be a kind of ooh, this is scary danger i should not be getting turned on but i definitely am agree to that but you know it's funny because i agree how a lot of the praise gets put on howard for this because he is a scary imposing figure mm-hmm. i think howell is delivering a wonderful performance in this film and oh he's the fucking anchor he's on screen by himself for i'd say 75 percent of this movie 100 percent, and he really like i mean, not saying that you know oh 
oh, it's uncommon for a male actor to have, for a male character to be sh- sh- shown a vulnerable side. But mm-hmm. like, there is a palpable fear in oh. this. What's essentially a final boy character in so many of these uh-huh. scenes that I feel for this guy so badly. Oh yeah, like he's crying through this encounter, which is is the appropriate response this would be legitimately terrifying because this guy seems so unhinged right off the bat but i love too that he doesn't know anything about this man so he can't even try to bargain or barter with him for his life because it's just like i don't know what you want because their whole thing leading up to the construction site is what what do you want where do you want me to to drop you and john is giving him nothing to work with no no and we'll get to his motive in a in a bit but sure. for now yeah we're sticking to this he wants to fuck him yeah yeah <laughs> okay so we're gonna move a little more rapid fire because that was like the big first piece we wanted to tackle but there's some some other smaller stuff before we get to the big diner sequence mm-hmm. but trace what do you think of this family massacre so it's so funny like, i feel like a horrible like uh, a researcher slash critic for not picking this up but like what do we have we have a gay man murdering a heterosexual nuclear family because that is what if if not what but the gay agenda (laughs) indeed you know what if you will not accept me i will have to tear you down i i again this is something too where it's like hey we're killing kids in this movie yes Um, we are we are not showing it though so you know we only see a little bit of blood on the window dripping off the floor but we don't like all we have to go off on the scene is howell's reaction to what he is seeing Mm-hmm. and yeah it, it's so well staged so he checks out the car he sees it we do not he runs back to his car goes to start it and has to stop open the door and barf and that tells me everything i need to know about how just brutal these murders were and i love it you know i think this is a really smart way to do this with you know taking the notes that said it's too violent we can't show this so you're you're basically doing the showing without the telling well but i do think too that this is probably something that would have been more graphic in red script oh sure Mm -hmm. like i I, do i want to know what they did what he did to them yes but do i need to no because it's effective enough as it is Mm -hmm. and folks will will acknowledge that there is also a 2007 remake we'll talk a little bit more about it at the end but uh just for shits and giggles it is far more graphic and far more violent because of course we were doing that in the 2000s but mm-hmm. you actually do get to see these kids bodies but i don't think it's like it may, maybe it's maybe like, gratuitous or anything yeah I, I think it's maybe because by 2007 like i like, the world is more desensitized to things and violence sure. so like well yeah it is definitely bloodier it's not like that bad <laughs> no no okay then moving on so you know we have another except piece where uh uh john approaches jim at this like gas station slash garage type thing mm-hmm. um it's intimidating whatever but then yes we have a car our first car chase of the movie with jim getting essentially his car is getting topped by john's car as he keeps ramming into his ass um mm-hmm. figuratively speaking yeah a little bumper action if you will mm-hmm. and then of course you know we have a uh, ramming the gas pumps exploding this gas station it's all a form of foreplay so yeah the first act of this movie is all john a getting to know jim but it's also foreplay although i don't know would you maybe read the whole movie as foreplay is there ever a quote-unquote sex scene between the two in this movie uh i i would say it's more the tete-a-tete when they're in the cars together so this and what happens with nash and also the diner i read that as the closest we come because you know we've got these phallic imagery with knives and guns playing Mm -hmm. you know the parts that we don't typically show in non-pornographic films 
But you do raise an interesting point. And this was one of the kind of chief arguments we made at the live show was that there's a reason that John doesn't kill Jim right away. He does this foreplay because he's he's a little bit different than some of the other people that john has encountered right well, trace th that that's the thing okay so yes yeah, so Harmon uh basically uh, and howard came up with the idea okay what what is the hitcher's motive you know what is he doing and they came up with the idea that he is a man that is so depressed that he wants to die by suicide but mm -hmm. he doesn't want to do it himself so he wants someone else to do it for him and that's that's how they that, that's what they had in their mind while they were filming this entire film and sure and it makes sense right like when you get to the end of the film you can see that there are parts where john was clearly looking for jim to kill him but why jim but 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 here's the thing though so okay i go with that that makes a good a good motive yes but also it it takes away the fact yeah why as you said why jim because he could just walk into a police station guns a blazing and they would just kill him boom mm -hmm. a job well done but no he focuses on jim and we know that someone has picked him up before jim did right. because they passed that car where he's like oh i caught up his legs i caught up his arms i caught up his head well okay why didn't he do to this guy what he's doing to jim right now mm-hmm and I, I can see the straight argument of this is because Jim fought back, right? He was able to kick John out of the car. He was the only one who managed to land a blow or really defend themselves. Sure, that that's a reasonable response. In your and my reading of this, it's because he hasn't met another queer person. He's met someone who interests him sexually somebody that he sees is not out and he wants to force the issue so he will continue to play with jim to bring him over to the dark side to make him more like him by acknowledging that he is queer so that's why he allows jim to live to gently ease him closer to his queerness which is really interesting because whenever i've hooked up with guys like who are like discreet i, I always like look I, I never like i know it's not right to be like okay well like you need to like you need to make someone come out. Like, obviously, people need to come out on their own time. But there's a oh, part of me yeah. that, you know, that feels where I'm like, well, I came out when I was 16. You should be able to do it, too, which is not fair, <laughs> which is not fair. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I almost feel like that's John, right? He's like, OK, yeah. like, I see that you're gay, but you haven't accepted it yet. So I'm just going to put you through the ringer until mm -hmm. you do. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, maybe this will do it. No. OK, let's try this other tactic. Am I getting any closer? Yeah, exactly. So... <laughs> Okay, well, why don't we go into this diner where we meet our pretty much the only female character in this movie, um, Nash, played by Jennifer Jason Lee. Mm hmm. Yeah. So I, I've definitely read reviews that suggest that this is a traditional damsel in distress, albeit not in the most conventional sense, because I think Nash is actually a pretty strong character. Like, she stands up for herself. She doesn't take shit. Mm -hmm. She's spunky, if you will. But I've, I've seen people suggest, oh, yeah, she's the love interest for Jim. You know, we're meant to root mm. for her and him to get together. And that's why the end is so hard. And I can kind of see that, but only from her perspective. I think if you want to read this as a love affair, it's her saying, oh, this poor boy, I could maybe love him. But oops, we keep getting terrorized by this man. But, Trace, I know you have a different read on Nash. Well, it's just, I don't necessarily know if I read her as a lesbian per se. However, <laughs> Nash is not exactly a feminine name. She is not outfitted like a quote-unquote typical woman. Right. Uh, she has a lot of masculine qualities to herself, mm -hmm. uh, including, like, she gets to use a gun later in the film when she's, like, saving Jim from the cops. So, I, 
and when it comes to the love interest thing, I mean, look, here's the thing. At no point ever do does Jim try to fuck her in this movie or does she try to fuck Jim? Now, granted, right. Is there ever time for that to happen? Even in the hotel room when they're both exhausted, like maybe you could argue maybe, but mm-hmm. I don't. I, I I detect more of a platonic friendship. Like I see, she sees someone in trouble and wants to help him. Right. I don't think it's because she has romantic feelings for him. If anything, like she's more of this like almost androgynous character. Yeah, you know, you and I made jokes offline. You know, oh, she's she's got a bit of a lesbian haircut there. Yeah, but uh, I mean, this is a very eighties haircut. So when. Or when we're looking back on it, sure. But at the time, this was pretty conventional. And yet, at the same time, when you start to add up, okay, the name, the clothes, some of the mannerisms, you know, yeah, we, we've got women who handle guns in other films, but usually they are the heroines, right? Like that is that moment where they're, you know, coming on to their phallic energy. And, you know, there there's a lot of readings that suggest that that is a, a sort of gender fluid construction, right? When women have to take on a phallus in order to become powerful. Right. So even if we're not sure how she identifies, I definitely do think we can still read Nash as a gently queer coded figure as well. Yeah, I, I agree. And also, I mean, I know I mentioned final boy as a phrase earlier, but like mm-hmm. that immediately sets this film apart and puts it in the very small group of horror films that have final boys. And I think it's impossible not to look at this film and not compare it to A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. Yeah, we, we've got in our notes, oh, uh, Nash is giving big Kim Myers energy in this movie. <laughs> Except she never tries to use her love to save him. Oh my god, let's not. <laughs> okay, but one other aspect of this diner sequence is, you know, she lets him in, she comforts him, she makes him a cheeseburger, and then he nearly eats a finger. Oh, yes. And of course, I mean, look, the obvious read of this is, okay, John is fingering Jim in this Mm -hmm. scene. Um, This scene... (laughs) In both senses of the word. In both senses of the word. It doesn't make a lot of sense because, honestly, I don't know when he has time. I mean, like, we do get a shot of, you know, Jim's in the bathroom kind of washing off and Nash puts the burger plate on, on the bar i guess um walks away and the other camera kind of just holds on the plate for a bit right i still don't understand how this guy got in here put the finger in got out whatever i it's fine Mm -hmm. that's where kind of ebert's thing about this is all allegory right like you can't really take everything in this film for realism no no and i mean he's too much of a character who can just kind of bamf in and do something terrible and just then disappear and it's like magic and i think that's part of the appeal of the film right he cannot be stopped he will just keep coming back like the terminator or in in my notes like aids because you know it's just that specter it will keep haunting you you cannot get away from it but you know these kinds of scenes they're silly they're a little bit weird they make you question the logic of the film but it also makes the film memorable yeah and hold on to the aids metaphor too because we're going to come back to that Right, yeah. <laughs> okay, so Jim doesn't get very far at this point. He ends up getting arrested by the police, and we've, we've got a couple of different instances where he has to interact with them, but Jim is never believed by them. No, no, not at all. And this is something, uh, I mean, look, here's the thing. I have never particularly met a nice cop. I have not, I mean, I don't know a lot of cops, but I've been pulled over a couple times in my youth. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. Is, is there like a, a regular like running, let's say running gag, like a, a history uh, of gay, of, of cops like not believing uh, queer men? Actually, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> didn't we just discuss the Dahmer miniseries last year? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I live in Toronto where we literally had a serial killer who was preying on the queer community for more than a decade. And the queer community actively told the police, we are being targeted. You need to protect us. And we were not believed and more men died. I will say, though, I mean, we at least get this first cop who's like, this kid's clearly ain't a killer. Like, any fool can see that. But yes, he's the only one out of this bunch. And because he dies pretty much immediately in this next, well, it's not really a set piece, but, you know, Jim is locked up and he falls mm-hmm. asleep and apparently does not hear any of the gunfight happening. I mean, he's been through trauma, so. <laughs> he's just really knocked out. Um, he is. But yeah, Rugger Hauer has somehow gotten his way into this police station, killed all of the cops, uh, to mm-hmm. the point where the only surviving member, besides Jim, is a uh, German Shepherd that is now mm-hmm. licking the, the sheriff's neck. Yeah. No no sort of big queer aspect to this part, but I do love the way that this is shot. Mm-hmm. To me, it's giving strong nightmare logic kind of vibes. Yeah. A touch of little like sort of surrealism. I think this is Roger Harmon really shining as a director because it's very atmospheric. Well, no, because honestly, and I'm not to bring up Nightmare on Elm Street again, but it's the first one. So the scene whenever Nancy is going through the high school because she's following oh, yeah. Tina, mm-hmm. it's shot in an, like a, like an ethereal way just like that scene. Yeah, I love that comparison. But um, and I will say this. So, you know, if we're, let's say instead of reading Howard as a gay man, we're reading him as the embodiment of AIDS itself. I have to give a shout out to a friend of the show, Justin Nordell, because he said, OK, yeah, let's let's run with the AIDS metaphor, because then all the cops are T-cells. Oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> That is good. Uh, but yeah, so, okay, so we have this, and then unfortunately, yeah, so the cops show up, they think he has killed all the cops. It is at this point where Jim escapes in the police station, and he kind of, like, wanders off into the hills of this desert, and he contemplate suicide like he holds a gun up to his chin and almost pulls the trigger yeah and you know as queer people high suicide rates uh struggling to deal with the ramifications of what you are what's happening to you maybe what someone is forcing you to reconcile within yourself suicide is a very real thing well that's the thing right jim is forced to confront his sexuality and he can't deal with it and so he contemplates suicide but wisely well Ops against. I was going to say, maybe not, because his life doesn't get better after this. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> it doesn't get better. <laughs> it, 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 it doesn't get immediately better for Jim, but he will get there. <laughs> it gets better, but honestly, not for everyone, and it probably won't for him. <laughs> okay, that is terrible. People who are listening, especially young, impressionable queers... Yes, it will get better. It's more when you have agency over your own actions. If you are being targeted by Rucker Hauer, you are not in control of your fate. But hopefully in real life, you will be able to seize the reins of your own life. Well, I'm just happy he doesn't ever say it can't get any worse than this at some point in this film. Jesus Christ. Okay, let's move on to this other diner (laughs) sequence. Because this, I think, for me, is the biggest, queerest, best part of this movie. No, I I would agree. So yeah, basically, Jim wanted into this diner. And while the owner goes back to get him some coffee... Rucker Howard just waltzes in here and sits in the booth with him. Yeah. So Jim has this gun. So he didn't use it on himself, but he is going to use it on John. And he's got it under the table. He's going to, you know, blow his brains through his ass. I'm like, you're starting to think with your dick in your butt there, Jim. Go for it, boy. Go for yeah. it. Yeah. But of course, he's firing blanks. 
<laughs> so Rugger Howard doesn't have a lot of like um, he doesn't emote a lot in this film. But mm-hmm. my the the one thing that always sticks out to me it is whenever he says you know the gun's empty and he's like yeah and he just does this. Uh, see this is when the, the visual medium of a live show helps. But right? he's like yeah and he has like this most like like mocking face on him. Like, this is when he's like it's so Dude, cruel. It's so fucked up. But and this is also to um see Thomas Howell and <laughs> uh. I think this is his best performance in the movie um, mm-hmm. when he pulls this trigger and he realizes he is lost. And yeah. there's something so primally upsetting about watching him realize that he has lost this battle. Oh, it's gutting. You you can just see it. And I, I would be remiss not to note that his hair has gotten massive and unwieldy at this point. But mm-hmm. yeah, he you said he's been put through the ringer a couple minutes ago, and it is so true, right? He has just seen it all at this point and he finally makes the motion right you know he couldn't fight back in a way that john wanted in the car he did enough to save himself but he wasn't actively fighting back and here he finally makes this move okay i'm ready to pull the trigger multiple times with this guy and it doesn't work out for him but as if that wasn't enough we have our like grab him by the his neck and basically caress him because mm-hmm. he asked him you know why are you doing this to me and his reply as he's like holding his head and he's licking pennies to put on his eyes yeah you're a smart kid figure it out and so this is the first time we have um saliva playing a part in the queerness <laughs> of these characters um there's more saliva talk in this movie than i think people realize uh saliva play uh because we'll get to that one in a minute <laughs> yeah but, um no and because I, I, I remember i asked you when we first watched this together i was like what is i mean look i know the coins on the eyes it's like okay you're putting them to pay the ferryman as you're going across the river sticks blah 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 mm-hmm. but like why does he do that in this film unless it's like okay maybe he's preparing him to die and right. I will give a shout out to audience member Tim when because I'm so mad I didn't say this. He's paying the ferryman, the fairy man, Joe. But but bum bum. Yeah, that, uh, I cannot believe I didn't come across that one. But uh, yeah, this is this is just so erotic. Oh, it is. It's so sexually charged. I. So I mentioned at the live show, the first time I watched this, I really didn't know what to expect. I just heard, oh, Howard is over the top as this hitchhiker who will not leave C. Thomas Howell alone. When you get to this scene and John grabs Jim by the face, again, it's very similar to the way the you're getting my car wet scene is filmed. Mm -hmm. It looks like they're going in for a kiss. I remember a kiss it's not in there, but I I so vividly recall it because there's a sexual charge between these two in these moments. It's are they going to fight and kill each other or are they going to fuck? Well, because when he's doing these coins, you know, the, the, we're, behind, we're behind Jim's shoulder. So we're, we're kind of seeing how we're, we see him lick the first coin and then put it on Jim's eye. But then I mm-hmm. I feel like this is what happens. He licks the second coin, but then he also like rubs it on Jim's lip and then puts it on the second eye. Yeah, or or he's making Jim complicit in these actions, right? He's trying to get him to be like him. So I lick it and now you lick it. And now we're both gay. 
<laughs> exactly. This is how gay works. You lick a penny and you become gay. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, though, so Harmon is aware of the homoerotic like readings of this film. Mm -hmm. And in that mail article, he said, you know, the homoeroticism or um, if you want to buy into homophobia as a queer coded villain, which we can also talk about that. Sure. Yes. It was something that evolved during filming. It was not part of the script. It was never part of the plan. It just kind of happened. But I do <laughs> what I find kind of funny is mm -hmm. that he is i like him for not pushing back on any of these queer readings of the right? film oh no don't call my film queer there's nothing in there we never meant to it you're seeing it you're reaching yes yeah, so he, he is like he's open to all these interpretations however he's more likely to fight you if you call it a horror film <laughs> <laughs> i really just don't like the word okay uh, so weird but anyway so Let's say that we are reading of uh, Rucker Hauer as a queer villain, right? So mm -hmm. does that make it more problematic for you as a viewer? So here's the thing. I I haven't had a huge issue with queer coded villains or or outright queer villains. Mm -hmm. I think when we start to move into trans killers, that becomes hugely problematic because they don't have any positive representation. And we should note, you know, in 86, I don't think we had a ton of great candidates, but I think that Hauer is delivering such a fascinating kind of you, you said he doesn't deliver a big range, but I do think that this is an interestingly nuanced performance oh, by yeah. him mm -hmm. because of these intimacy. Like, I very firmly believe that he has this kind of charged backstory in mind for John Ryder, and I think it comes out really strongly. So even though, I mean, in our reading of these two characters as queer, it's not positive. I don't have a problem with him. I'm kind of the same way, you know? I mean, look, if if Rucker Howard, and not, not to stereotype like a feminine gay man, but if Rucker Howard was running around like as a quote-unquote sissy boy, you know, I would mm. be more offended by that portrayal of it, I guess. But I, I can't really quite describe why. Uh, that's your internalized homophobia. Speaking. Yeah, that's probably what it is. <laughs> but the, the reality is, is this is a butch queer killer, mm -hmm. right? And there's something kind of fascinating about that. Yeah, yeah, I agree um okay so we'll go through we have a couple more things before we get to you know the, the next big set piece but um jim finds his way on a bus again that is housing nash who is you know on her way somewhere in west texas <laughs> she's going to and from work on this weird charter bus well she knows everyone she knows all the cops she knows the mm -hmm. bus driver like she like i mean I, this is a small texas town like i get it but it's just sure. kind of like okay <laughs> sure 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 <laughs> but jim grabs her hides her in the bathroom so of course um the bathroom holds a special place in many a gay man's heart especially if you're out on the highway especially I, honestly i'm surprised we don't have a truck stop in this movie Right? I mean, I think the gas stations and the diners are meant to connote that. But yeah, I, I think if we had a, had a queer director or someone who wanted to lean into this aspect of the story more, we would have had a rest stop. Yeah, no, I'm in complete agreement with that. But honestly, though, this is leading into the next saliva set piece, which... Oh, boy. <laughs> the, okay, so the cops pull this bus over. They have Jim uh, come out and they're like, basically, this cop is pissed off. He's like, you killed all my friends. Mm-hmm. He's going to, A, he's going to shoot Jim. He's just going to take the law into his own hands. But before he does so, he says, you spit on my hand, wipe it off. And mm -hmm. 
I know we said we weren't really reading much of a BDSM related. Well, I, I guess between Howard and Jim, but right. this feels more BDSM than anything that Howard does. Yeah, I mean the the default conventional reading of this is oh, this cop is just looking for an excuse to shoot Jim, which is something that Nash clues into very quickly, and that's why she ends up firing the gun and they take off and so on. But this choice of words, you know. If we are reading Jim as a queer man, it feels like this guy is cluing into it because he's disgusted by the idea that Jim might have gotten his dirty gay saliva on him. Like he could have said anything to justify shooting him. And instead he chooses, ooh, your dirty gay germs. Exactly. And it's, I mean, like, like that's not the reason he's killing him, but it's definitely a part of the reason he wants to kill him. Mm -hmm. And also, like, straight people were terrified of queer people because of AIDS and how is AIDS contracted. Right. You can get it on a toilet seat. You can get it from kissing. You can get it from just, like, touching someone, right? Yes. All of those things are 100% true and <laughs> definitely should not be researched for their factual <laughs> nature. So now we go to this hotel room scene, which leads to what I would assume is the film's most infamous set piece, right? Yeah, and of course, folks, we're, we're jumping over the helicopter chase sequence and oh, all yeah. the cars going boom in slow-mo. Good stuff, good stuff. Not as pertinent to our podcast. No, it's a fun action scene. It's a little long, but you know what? It <laughs> shot well. It looks well. The money was put to good use. Absolutely. Let's get down to the non-fucking. Yeah, okay, they get this hotel room. And again, like I feel like I don't want to even want to say a lesser movie, but a different movie would have <laughs> had these two fuck in this scene. Yeah, I mean, you, you said this earlier, there was no good time for them to have done this. Obviously, this would have been the right. moment. And it's not as though people who are grieving or traumatized don't end up leaning into the emotional and physical connection of having sex at these kind of weird or uncertain moments. So I think they could have done it like this would have been the place to do it. The fact that they don't just gives our theories more credit. I agree with that. But, and here's the thing, though. Howard somehow gets in this room. It's a really, really good reveal <laughs> he bams, shot. I'm telling you. Yeah, yeah, he, he, exactly. But he gets into bed with Nash. He looks up at the ceiling and he looks very sad for a moment. Like he's mm -hmm. like, I don't want to have to do this, but I will do this. You know what? I, this is the only way to drag that young baby gay kicking and screaming out of the closet. I'm going to have to kill this woman. Well, he's like, well, if he comes out of that shower, because Jim is showering at this point, right. he's going to fuck her, and I cannot let that happen. It's true. It will only confuse him more. But, okay, actually, I didn't even think about this. So, because what happens is, he gets into bed with Nash, and he starts, like, holding her and, and spooning her. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is she caresses his hand back, and she kind of, like, you know, kisses it. That's when he decides to he's going to grab her. I'm sorry. That's when he does grab her. I almost wonder if she had just like not acted on anything, mm -hmm. if he would have left her because then she therefore wasn't a threat to Jim's sexuality. Or he's repulsed by her and he thinks, OK, you know what? You're the closest to forming a connection with this guy. And how dare you kiss my hand? I guess, though, this next scene is kind of the closest to a sex scene we get because it's the it's well, the, the, the second diner scene is pretty intimate. But then mm -hmm. this is intimate because there is a climax to it of sorts. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. It's the final showdown in this truck cab. <laughs> Do I believe for a moment that any police officer would ever let a civilian become a hostage negotiator? No. Uh, Hollywood, you rang? 
Um, okay, so I, I didn't have much about the production of this film, like, you know, like little anecdotes, but there is one. So according to the Mel article, and this is a quote from Harmon, but there weren't really any issues during filming except during this scene. And mm-hmm. as we've mentioned, you know, the, the, all the producers had an issue with this scene. All the, uh, the, the, the studios had an issue with this scene. The director had an issue with this scene. We did not want to see this girl get ripped in half, and we don't. But sure. Howard did not have an issue with this scene up until the day of filming. And... He basically holed himself up in his trailer and refused to come out. And so he's halting <laughs> production. And so Harmon has to go in and he's like, hey, man, um, we have a scene to shoot. What's going on? And Howard, is, he's apologizing. He's like, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I can't believe I didn't think about this before. But I can't do this scene the way it's written. And what what I guess I didn't realize is um, Howard is in his mind. He doesn't think he ever plays bad guys because it's something that he told C. Thomas Howell on the set. He's like, I never play bad guys. And he's left it at mm-hmm. that. And on a level, I get it. You know, it's kind of like, okay, like a, a, the scariest villains are the ones who don't view their actions as villainous. And right. I kind of maybe view, I hope that's what Howard is getting at with that. But oh, sure. Yeah, he's for him to embody this character. He has to play him as a human being, not, oh, I'm the big scary villain. It's just it's such a a sort of outrageous thing to say. Right. But that, that's what he's, so he's like, I cannot play this scene the way it's written, because if I do, then it makes me the bad guy. <laughs> and yes, sir. <laughs> Harmon like had to stifle a laugh because he's like, yeah, what the fuck movie do you think we're making here? So Howard says, I'm going to add all these lines to this script. I'm going to. And, and he did. He literally said, I'm going to say this, this and this and this. I'm going to do this, this and this and this. And. Harmon at this point is like getting nervous because he's like he is literally ruining this scene. Mm-hmm. But if I tell him I don't, I won't do that. He's not going to come out and shoot the scene, right? So he says, "You know what, Rucker? Okay, we're going to do it your way." So he shoots the scene with all of Howard's additions, and then in the editing process during post production, cuts all of them out. <laughs> <laughs> and. He never, like, talked to Howard about it, and Howard never mentioned it to him whenever they saw him, because they actually remained friends up until Howard's death a couple years ago. Wow. I mean, I just don't think you could do anything differently. Like, you certainly can't have John give some kind of rationale or a backstory. It's not the time or the place for that. So the way that this comes together is magnificent. There's a reason that Ebert gave this film zero stars, and it is this. It's the piece of the film that everyone remembers. But again, you don't see it. So you, you know he pulled. You see, you see her get tugged, and then the film <laughs> basically fades to black. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And in that 2007 remake, you do get to see everything. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't say that it's more or less satisfying. I mean, it's definitely way gorier. Yeah. But I don't think anything is lost by not seeing it and just getting this fade to black. I I think it's very effective. And I don't think anything is gained by seeing it in that remake. So again, I'm fine with either version of it. Uh Yeah. But all this to say, Nash had to die because she was not the right person. You know, we could afford to sacrifice her because Jim was not actually attracted to her. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, then we get... What, to me, honestly, is the queerest part of this movie. <laughs> I love that this is what you have landed on. I j- okay, here's the thing. Playing with saliva, um, okay, it, with your fingers. And honestly, <laughs> it's kind of a loogie, too. It's just so gross. This is oh, disgusting. this is not a polite spit, no. So John gets arrested, and Jim gets to go in again. <laughs> He's just allowed in to say yeah. some, some things. The, uh, <laughs> Captain Estridge, by the way, played by uh, The Walking Dead's Jeffrey DeMond. He's like, yeah, sure. Go on in there. Talk to just this hostage. Head on in. Yeah. And 
yeah, Jim just fully spits in his face. And in any other film, what you would expect would be repulsion, yeah. uh, it, it, no reaction at all. And instead, what we get is John playing with it, caressing it. Yes. I, you know, in, in a pornographic version of this, he licks his finger. Um, yes, I'm legit surprised he didn't. But like, also the, the camera holds on him, like just looking at this saliva, because maybe at this point, he he maybe thinks this is the closest he'll get to actually fucking him. Well, um, I mean, he just got a facial. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, not the one he wanted, but it's close <laughs> enough. <laughs> oh, boy. But even like, but again, it's not just us that's noticing noticing this. It's not just uh, uh, the Globe and Mail that's noticing this. Captain Estridge flat out tells Jim, there's something strange between you two. I don't know what it is, and I don't want to know. And I will say, because you know, we did get to watch this screening um, before our live show at Salem Horror Fest, and this mm-hmm. line got so many laughs from the audience. <laughs> 100%. Oh, dude's in the know. He's, he's basically saying, don't ask, don't tell. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what he's saying. I mean. <laughs> Y'all, it, this movie is so fucking gay. It's so gay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but it's also almost done. So all we've got left is John's death. And, you know, if we see this spit facial as a step in the right direction for Jim, the fact that he didn't fuck Nash as a step in the right direction, well, the only thing better could be a little bit of shotgunny penetration. Yep. Uh, so they don't even show how Howard gets out of. I mean, he opens the door, but I, how does he get rid of the cops in this? Magic. Yeah, like, we don't see it. <laughs> we just have to go buy into it because why not? Why not? But yeah, so he jumps into this car and uh, Jim quickly shits him out. <laughs> oh, my God. It is so amazing. Watching this on the big screen was a delight. So yeah. seeing John just jump through the windshield and it's kind of a hey baby moment you know hey i'm back in your car did you miss me look here i am and jim just hits the brake and he goes back out the window again yes oh oh my god okay i'm sorry i have to i have to cut us off right now because mm-hmm. i forgot you, you mentioned saying oh when you saw the big screen it was it was a good experience because I agree, because I, I like to watch movies on the big screen, especially if, I, especially if I've already seen them on the small screen, because mm-hmm. often I will notice things that I didn't notice before, because you know you have that attention span on the big screen. Sure. I forgot to mention that Howard is constantly playing with a white handkerchief, especially in the, oh, in the first yes. half of this film. <laughs> Trace literally, in the middle of the screening, reaches over, nudges me, and goes, hey, white hanky. <laughs> and of course everyone if you don't know um in in the leather bar scene uh in the in the, in the days of yore in the 70s the uh <laughs> gay men would put color-coded hankies in their back pockets to let the other men in the area know what they were into so of course you know like yellow was obviously for uh, piss play white i had to look it up during the live show like joe was talking and i was like okay let me go and like like look up what white hanky means yeah let me let me fill up this dead air as you look it up (laughs) yes it was mutual masturbation it's jacking each other off and that's exactly what howard and howell are doing to each other in this movie that's so sweet. There's something so endearing about it. <laughs> Even, you know, down to, yes, I, I recognize there's a bunch of people absolutely rolling their eyes. Sure, that's fine. But even these small little moments, and again, it's not just us, you know, when I was reading Lindenberg's piece, he noticed that after Jim has shot John, you see him kick the body as you are apt to see in plenty of horror films, he nudges him with the gun. But there's also this moment where he trails the gun through John's hair, and it looks like a caress. It's affectionate. 
Yeah, but he's finally come. He's coming out. He's coming out of his shell. Now he Truly. killed this old gay man because the younger generation is taking over. <laughs> yes, that is the message of this film. <laughs> out with the old, in with the new. There we go. All we're missing is Jim's pride parade. Yeah. And then it just ends, right? He walks over to his car and he, um, the credits just start rolling. And I mean, this isn't really a happy ending, though. No, it's true. I mean, as you said, this is not the most enjoyable film in terms of it's pretty nihilistic. It's very mm -hmm. bleak. I don't find it scary, but it is frequently tense and it's overwhelming. You know, yeah. I feel exhausted after watching. This I was going to say exhausting is the word I would use. I, I I don't ever. I mean, look, watching this four or five times in a week was a lot. And I would I will never watch this movie again for a very long time because <laughs> it is exhausting. <laughs> I will never watch this film again. For a very long time. For a very time. long time. <laughs> ever, 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 Give me ever, a ever. year. Give me a year. <laughs> but, okay, well, so, you know, we're kind of heading towards the end here, but let, let's let's just briefly touch on the sequel and the remake, because... Okay. <laughs> the, okay, everyone, here's the thing. The sequel, it's 2003, it was direct-to-video, it... it I will give it this. It doesn't look as cheap as I expected it to look for being a direct-to-video sequel to The Hitcher. It does have a terrible script. Oh, yeah. But we have C. Thomas Howell, who returns, and he is um, somehow a cop who is still struggling from major PTSD <laughs> from this event. The opening scene of the film is him shooting a hitchhiker who um, is uh, not well, but instead of arresting him, he shoots him. And uh, how did he pass his psych exam on his police evaluation? Oh, absolutely not. And he also has a girlfriend who will inherit the film when he is unceremoniously killed by Jake Busey at the 40 minute mark. Yes. The girlfriend is Kari Wurr. And we are led to believe in the early, basically first act of this film that Jim never told her anything about this. So she yes. just thinks that he's a violent cop. Well, and, and she's still with him and she still loves uh -huh. him a lot. I just think you need therapy. <laughs> it is wild. Well, because the whole basically what happens is like after he kills this random hitchhiker, he's like he's put on like a suspension for of sorts. To be clear, the random hitchhiker was an abductor and killer of children. He's yes. not just randomly driving around killing hitchhikers. Yes, yes, yes. But the, the, the so what happens is his girlfriend, Yokari know, works. she's fixing planes. She's like, well, let's go somewhere. I'll fly you in my plane. And he goes, I'm going to go. <laughs> see my good friend captain estridge the yeah. jeffrey demun character from the first film mm -hmm. and we're gonna go say hi and he <laughs> <laughs> it's the only person who understands him trace yes they pick up jay Busey. he you know attacks them he then finds his way to jeffrey demun's house and kills him mm -hmm. but i should point out it's not jeffrey demun in the movie um jeffrey no. demun is uh the character is shot from below the neck so you can't see the actor's face <laughs> Yeah, or you're seeing it in profile with very dim lighting, so it kind of looks like Jeffrey Dumont, but it's very clearly not because he did not come back for this film. But yeah, so the, uh, Jim gets killed by Jake Busey, by by Thomas C. Thomas Howell. Apparently, when when he agreed to do this, um, there was going to be more involvement from Rucker Hauer in the film. I don't know right. how that was going to happen. No. Um, the Jay Busey character has no connection to the Rucker Hauer character. He's, again, just another hitcher who is psychotic and he's been waiting because he literally says i've been waiting but he says <laughs> it in a, what he, yo, he says it in a nightmare sequence so that's jim projecting that, that. But, but 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 here's the thing he has this like it's the thing where he's in the car and you know oh he the hitter attacks him and he's like i've been waiting and then oops jim snaps out of it it's all been a nightmare 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. In his dream, Jake Busey pulls out a gun, like a really long barreled gun. Like it's, it's, it's a very u- yeah. unique looking one. And it's very phallic. Yes, very much so. But when he does actually pull out a gun five minutes later in this scene, it's mm-hmm. the same fucking gun. It is. <laughs> Which means that Jim somehow psychically knew exactly what this gun was going to look like. <laughs> Well, you know, Trace, there's a connection between those two men, and I don't know what it is, and I don't want to know what it is. Uh, but anyway, he dies. <laughs> Kari Wara takes over. She's getting framed. Uh, Jay Boosie locks her in a water tower that's going to collapse at one point. Mm-hmm. There's some okay stuff. Like, I, I mean, I'm cutting you off because yeah. at the end of the day, we don't need to spoil the entire film. If people sure. want to check it out, it's available. It's not terrible like it don't rush out and see it or anything but if you're remotely curious it's fine yeah it's a two-star film for me but like i was expecting a one-star film here's the thing we also watched it together and we were cackling oh it's so funny curry she is saddled with terrible dialogue and she also cannot convincingly deliver it. So there was some good campy moments for you and I to just kind of cackle like schoolgirls. 100%. But what doesn't have any campy elements is that Platinum Dunes remake from 2007, which mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I, I remember thinking it was fine because I did see it in theaters. I actually quite liked it on this rewatch. Oh, yeah. I thought I had seen it and I think it was another one of these where I watch parts of it and not the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed this, too. You know, I I think it's doing enough homages to the original. They're trying to update some of these set pieces. I did love the fact that since we're in an age where cell phones exist, we have to have them be very flimsy so that Sean Bean can just break it in half. half. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way to do it. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's a good time. You know, I I think if we're being honest, the remake has a higher rewatchability factor so i I do rate it higher because the gore is good it's stylish uh the clothing is absolutely ridiculous because we are talking men with flare jeans which was an iconic time in my life doesn't doesn't sophia bush wear a jean skirt she does she wears a very short jean skirt for the entire film and i felt bad for her because it looked cold wait in texas Wow. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. It's shot in California. They're in New Mexico. Sorry, because they, they they start out in Austin, Texas, but by the time yes. they pick up the Hitcher, it is um, they're in New Mexico. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, to me, the remake is a very fun movie. And I Absolutely. Don't, I don't yeah. think the original is a fun movie. And so, no. if you're a huge like purist of the original, then that's probably going to turn you off, right? Like this movie shouldn't yeah. be fun. It should be nihilistic. It should be upsetting. But that being said, though, like I for what it is it's a, I, I enjoy it a lot yeah no it, it's a good time and particularly if you're in a hitcher frame of mind watching the three films in a short period of time was pretty enjoyable yeah i i, I agree look at us getting along <laughs> okay so one thing we did not have time to do with the live show because we ran out of time but i would love to do with you is one final wrap up okay is play a quick little game a battle of the villains trace so one other film that we have talked about which actually would pair very nicely with either the remake or the original is joyride from 2001 Mm -hmm. so i would like you to tell me who is the best villain john the rucker hauer character from 86 john from the 07 remake or rusty nail from joyride 2001 I think the best villain, in terms of just sheer intimidation, is John from the 1986 Hitcher. Okay. 
mm-hmm. then Rusty Nail, mm. and then John from the remake. And not because Sean Bean isn't good in the role, and that, but it, the they do explain more of him, and they give yeah. him like kind of a backstory, but not really. But then like even like you know how I was complaining, not complaining, but I was commenting how like oh how does Rucker Howard get out of this police car? Yes. Well, we see him, you know, like like break his thumb to get out of the handcuffs in the remake, yeah. and I was like, oh, it makes it. I mean, again, it's something times where more is less, you know. Yeah, and points off for that scene because it definitely looked like we were headed for a degloving, and then we don't get it. Yeah, yeah. Or, or because as last year's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie got me like prime for um, breaking someone's arm and stabbing them with the bone shard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I will confess, I think I would rate Rusty Nail first, mm-hmm. in part because he's doing so much with just vocal affectation. No, I, I agree with you. And you're, the, the, I think, though, that there's more of a mystery to John mm. in 86, which is why I rank him higher. But I do. I, that's not to say that Rusty Nail is not a great villain. Yeah, yeah. Because the other piece that I like about that character is he develops this air of mystery around him when he attacks people and you see the brute force of what he's capable of yeah and the fact that we don't really get to see much of him is very enticing to me that's another movie too though i mean honestly where there is gore in that movie but it's very Mm -hmm. brief it's very fleeting and i feel like roger ebert gave that a good review (sighs) he was wildly inconsistent (laughs) (laughs) i mean and also because the girl i mean i know it's brothers in that movie but like the girl (laughs) is you know tied up dams in distress she's gonna have a shotgun pulled a bag oh she doesn't die though that's the difference she does not yeah. No. And also, how dare you call her the girl? That is Lily Sobieski. You put her name in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> also, Ro- uh, Roger Ebert gave Joyride a three and a half out of four and called it a first rate pure thriller. You know what? Maybe it, he just needed 15 years to come around. Yeah. But also, I guess that movie is more fun, right? Like it doesn't have that nihilistic feel that, that, that the Hitcher does. Ooh, I I don't know, folks. Go back and re-listen to our episode because I feel like Trace was singing a different tune then. Maybe, maybe. Well, because I hadn't rewatched The Hitcher yet. There we go. You know what? (laughs) There we go. All right, everyone. Well, that has been The Hitcher, our redo of our live episode. So hopefully you've enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Before we announce what we're covering next week, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, please reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers, uh, as well as our most anticipated films of each month. If you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We are now in June. So go sign up now and you will get, if you sign up at the highest level, you will get 244 hours of extra content. That is all the Patreon episodes we've done over the past four or five years. Uh, This month, we are catching up on horror tv with a discussion of both slasher ripper on shutter and season two of yellow jackets on showtime as for movies we've got rob savage's stephen king adaptation the boogeyman and the all-black cast slasher film the blackening our audio commentary for the month will be on the aquatic slasher sequel jaws 2 just in time for its 45th anniversary Ooh, yes but joe mm-hmm. what are we going to be talking about next week 
Oh my god. We're heading into July and we're getting a legacy sequel in theaters that you and I were not sure we were ever going to get. So to coincide with the release of Insidious 5, The Red Door, we are going to check out Insidious Chapter 2. Because, of course, folks, we already have an episode on Insidious 1 on the Patreon if you want to watch along with us. It's our audio commentary. But yeah, so we're going to check out some problematic trans characters with Insidious (laughs) Chapter 2 next week. You you say trans, but I don't even know. uh, But but that's the problem. That's the problem. (laughs) And yeah, it is an issue. But yeah, that's what we're going to look at next week. It is some silly, can't be fun with, yes, uh, plenty of problematic aspects to discuss. Indeed, yes. And it's a film that we both quite like with reservation around those issues. For sure. But um, all right, until then, we can cross out The Hitcher. Indeed. And cross out Horror Queers, The Redo. 